Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy. I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Mr. Bennett Tomlin. How are you today? Well, I was just able to get out of a position in some unvested tokens I wasn't really a fan of anymore, so I'm feeling pretty good, all things considered. That's awesome news, man. I hope it wasn't Cass Coin. We are, he's uh, bringing up that topic because we're talking about possibly four of my least favorite people in the entire world today. Uh, we are talking about the hosts of the All In podcast. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the All In podcast, God bless you. You probably just want to turn this off and skip it because you know what? You should never, ever listen to them and just move on with your life. Um, however, I think a lot of people, especially people who listen to our show, are likely familiar with the All In uh, podcast and the hosts who are, let's go through them one by one, Chamath Polyapedia, Jason Calacanis, David Sachs, and David Friedberg. Now, I decided that we needed to do an episode about these gentlemen because Chamath has been an asshole on Twitter a lot lately. And and that's it. Like he basically, uh, he triggered me to <laughs> force Bennett uh, to, to discuss these these fellows. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just jump into that, which was he tweeted at this guy who said, hey, man, like, I, you know, I'm going to we're we're just I'm not using exacts here. But he th this guy basically said, hey, man, how's it feel to be a billionaire after having made all this money off the backs of retail investors and and scammed a bunch of people with your dumbass SPACs? SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies. That's what it stands for. It was this, I, I guess it's still going on kind of, but it was a bit of a fad over the past couple of years where people were doing these SPACs and getting them onto stock exchanges, whether it was the, you know, New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or whatever. Um, and Chamath was one of the people doing it all the time. And almost all of them had basically just done terrible. So this person asked Chamath this question and Chamath's response was, I'm in the arena, um, as though he's a goddamn gladiator in Roman times, which is just unreal. <laughs> like, we don't know at all. <laughs> like, comparing any of our existences to what it was like for gladiators in the arena, especially a billionaire who's just investing in shit coins and fucking, <laughs> and, and crappy, investments like what an unreal statement you're, you're not but, allowed to say you're a man in the arena until you lead the rough riders in the spanish-american war everyone <laughs> knows the rules i even read a Substack this past week where someone who notoriously sides with venture capitalists like a journalist who basically writes for venture capitalists even he was like chamath what the fuck, man? Like, got to apologize for this. Like, you you are celebrating, you're celebrating shitting on retail investors. You're celebrating stealing money from the everyman and you're owning it. Like, you're owning it, saying it's fine and suggesting that, like, you are the gladiator for destroying the common man. And it's just like, it's such a weird flex. Well, and just to kind of add on to that, did you realize just how much money... He made from some of his specs. Oh, uh, it's almost a billion dollars. Yeah, like he made he sold his stake in Virgin Galactic for 213 million. It's now down like 95% from peak or something like that. Clover, he had an original $25,000 investment that he sold for $290 million, and it's also down like 94% from peak. He made a ton of money on these companies, which the market seems to have determined as soon as he dumped his stakes were effectively valueless. And I know he was involved in SoFi or whatever, too, which is doing 
better than these ones, but it struck me at just how massive those numbers are. Do you remember during the GameStop mess when Robinhood closed down their trading for a little yes. bit? He sent a bunch of people over to SoFi saying like, uh, Robinhood is selling your order flow to Citadel Securities. You should come trade at SoFi instead. And of course, SoFi was selling all their users order flow to market making firms. Anything for cash. So I fucking fly home from Italy, from Italy. Get back in the arena. At 35,000 feet, I, I decide to troll the mids. Oh, no. We'll talk oh, about no. that later. But anyways, <laughs> sipping a beautifully chilled white burgundy. So uh, that was his first kind of strike recently, recent strike. Um, but then he did something that really fucking pissed me off. And this is, um, you got to go on this show. You got uh, you got to join uh, Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway who host uh, the Odd Lots podcast, which if you're not subscribed to, fantastic podcast. Go listen to it. It's really like, if you're interested in any random finance topic, they probably covered it and you should find that episode and listen to them because they're super informative and fantastic. Someone said, because uh, Joe <laughs> posted, Joe posted on Twitter and said, uh, one of Chamath's SPACs had gone down 93% since he had shilled it. And uh, that was Clover, someone said, right? oh, and someone, yeah, and someone said, uh, okay, so Chamath, are you going to go on the Odd Lots podcast? And he said, why would I go on a podcast no one listens to? Which is just like, dude, not only is it obviously not true, this is one of the most listened to financial podcasts in America, in the world, um, but also it's just so cringe to have that as your response. It's so like, I'm rubber, you're glue kind of fucking kitty bullshit um, that it, it incensed me enough to be like, we got to talk about these guys. I fucking hate these guys. Um, so that's where we are. Um, where do you want to start with these fellows? Because there's a lot. There's a lot here. It's almost overwhelming to go over some of the details about these things. So I think we kind of just need to start a little bit with some of their backgrounds, right? Um, David Sachs, members of the PayPal mafia, right? They were executives involved in various ways with PayPal. And when that was initially bought out, this group, including Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, uh, Reed Hoffman and a bunch of these other folks became very important in Silicon Valley because they were rich and that's how you become important in Silicon Valley. Since then, they have, to varying degrees and slightly different depending on which member of the mafia you're talking about, grown in self-importance to an almost preposterous degree. And what I think is especially striking about many members of the PayPal mafia is they have not shied away from using their money to get involved in other things, especially politics and other societal issues. For David Sachs and Peter Thiel, this dates back to the Book of Rape Apologia they wrote in college. For uh, Jason Calacanis, he's involved in a variety of nonsense political movements. Um, David Sachs is contributing to a bunch of idiots in various political races that he wants to support. And broadly, many of these individuals have shared opinions that range from the stupid to the abhorrent throughout their entire careers with um, extra consideration given to these meaningless thoughts because of their wealth. And I think that's kind of really the issue with them is that they are given consideration for objectively stupid things because they are objectively wealthy people. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's a kind of a double-edged sword here, actually, because I think that in some sense, these guys represent to retail and, um, you know, plebes like us, uh, these, guys, these guys represent, uh, you know, these are the wealthy. These are the wealthy people. These are they're speaking 
on behalf of the wealthy people. And then on the other end of that, I think it's funny because it's not like, not that I, I think venture capitalists in general kind of suck, but the truth is that not all venture capitalists suck and not everyone in Silicon Valley sucks. However, these guys, by being the loudest, most obnoxious people coming out of venture capital and coming out of Silicon Valley, they become the voice of all the venture capitalists. And so now they represent those people, whether they like it or not. And so it's it, here it is. It's this double-edged sword. On one hand, you have retail going, oh, these guys speak for all venture capitalists. And then on the other, you have venture capitalists going like, I wish these guys didn't speak for us, but they do. <laughs> and I think the other thing is just how much of their shtick is like just so clearly a performance, right? Like we're talking about billionaires and centimillionaires. I'm not sure if they've all hit the billion mark, Friedberg especially, right. but these are a, a incredibly wealthy individuals. And in their last podcast episode, I think it was their last one, they spent 40 minutes reacting to the song Rich Men North of Richmond. And because of this, the top 20%, the top 5% have acquired, you know, an outsized amount of the assets, an outsized amount of the income. As, as we all know and have all benefited from, and the vast majority of Americans so that have been you, working wait, I have, jobs I have and a working careers. I have a yeah, question yeah. for Freeberg. Freeberg, do you think that we should implement policies to change the lines on this graph? That's exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah. Right? Which is them. <laughs> um Is them. <laughs> and like the entire time, they're trying to give kind of also, this Also, that is like the biggest psyop ever. Yeah, they're paying lip service to this like pseudo populism that's like this anti-elite populism. Meanwhile, they are the elites. We're talking about like Ivy League educated for many of them, centi-millionaires and billionaires. They are the elites. They're the ones with the power. They're the people. <laughs> they're surprised to find out you can get a pint of ice cream for less than $11. They're insane. shocked to learn that Walmart is cheaper than Whole Foods. I walked around they... Walmart. By the way, <laughs> Bennett is referencing a Jason Calacanis clip with Molly Wood, who Molly Wood left the... Uh, this week in startups podcast, as far as I know, she um, she left to start her own venture fund or something. I don't even know if this week in startups is still going on or not. I haven't checked. I'm not going to check. Um, but yeah, so in this clip, he's talking to Molly Wood and saying like, I went to Walmart for the first time ever, and I didn't realize there's cheap products. What? Like how out of touch with reality could? And this this Walmart. I just, I just want to point out. Yeah, I, I went to a Walmart. What? You? Once. I, I filled three shopping carts. Yeah. And it was like $127. And exactly. I was like, wait a second. When I go to Whole Foods, it's $127 for two bags. What's going on here? And I realized mm -hmm. things are cheap in the world. <laughs> There's like a cheap version of all the expensive stuff I buy. Yeah. There's like a I cheap version that. of yogurt. There's a cheap version of milk. There's a cheap version of ice cream. I didn't know that. I'm buying like pints of super premium ice cream for $11. I didn't know there was a $3 version of that. This all goes back. No, no, no. It's not just out of touch. He's supposed to be an investor business, like a this businessman I mean. entrepreneur who, who can't figure out that there's stratification of markets, that different products will be marketed at different price points to different segments of consumers. But he this, apparently this, didn't know that. But this is so much of what I see with these guys, with all of the all in guys, but a ton of SVVCs in general, right? Like we we make a joke of it being like, oh, they don't go outside. Like they all they do is like 
stay in their tiny little bubble. No, really though, really. All they do is stay in their very, very tiny little bubble and travel in their private jets to stay in their little bubbles across the country or across the world. They're, 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 they have their little tiny bubbles and that's it. There is no reality outside of those little bubbles for them. They don't know what the life you, le you lead, any of you. Like they don't understand it. They can't comprehend driving yourself to the store and shopping for, for cheap goods so that you don't spend your entire budget. That, that idea is outside the realm of reality for them. That's crazy. Don't trust these guys. That's craziness. It should also make you immediately suspicious anytime any of their tweets start with, I was walking down the streets of San Francisco. Because no, they weren't. <laughs> no, you weren't. <laughs> Bullshit. You talked to someone who walked down the streets of San Francisco. Your personal shopper complained to you when they got no, back no. when you were walking down to your car. Your personal like... shopper complained to your assistant who talked to your assistant, your other assistant who told you, right? I know how this fucking works, guys. Stop pretending. Enough. Michelle Tandler was constantly talking about the degeneracy and the collapse of San Francisco and, and how horrible it was. And uh, and ma just completely making up stories. Like, she'd be like, oh, dogs are getting high on meth because meth addicts are taking shits in the park. And then the dogs are eating their meth-laden shit. Well, it turns out meth is not, like, you can't shit meth. That's not how well, you, that's not how you um, metabolize it. It's well, metabolized and, and drug metabolites and, and are not it. the drug, right? Acetylaldehyde isn't going to get you drunk, you know? You know, yeah, exactly. You know more about this than I do, having dealt with pharmaceuticals, etc. in your, in your work before um, Protos. And and you can attest to this. Like, this is insane. This is not how shit works. But there she was just spreading anything negative about San Francisco that she possibly could while living in San Francisco and getting money from a David Sachs from his craft uh, ventures, which is just like, yeah. what what is she even doing? I, a part of her um, startup was like teaching people how to boil water <laughs> and stuff yeah. like that. You're just going, why is this guy giving any money to this woman at all? Um, and I don't have an answer for you if, if, if you're expecting I, well, me I, to answer that. I, I do. Oh, I please. do. It's because she Please. was supporting some of his political goals, right? Like she was important in the attempted recall of, uh, oh, Chelsea, Chelsea Boudin, 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 B-O-U-D-I-N, um, and stuff like that. And so David Sachs is supporting Michelle Tandler because they run in the same um, kind of reactionary, pseudo-libertarian right-wing circles in Silicon Valley. Um, and that's why. It's, it's the same reason why Peter Thiel funds a bunch of people and David Sachs co-invests on everything Peter Thiel is doing, right? Because it's a type of mutual support. Um, we should we've probably discussed, start... By the way, we've discussed Peter Thiel on other episodes. I think uh, we discussed Peter Thiel with, with Mooncat when she was mm -hmm. on. So if you want to listen to that episode, you know, go back in the archives and see if you can find it. Um, we've also discussed other venture... venture Like the concept of venture capitalism before with... Uh, with um, God, who did we talk about it with? Oh my God, I'm blanking on that too. But I know that we discussed kind of the Ponzi, not Ponzonomics mm -hmm. of venture capital um, before. And these guys are the epitome of that, like in every yeah. sense of the word. Well, and, and I think we should probably start, stop talking as much in generalities and start focusing in on like a few of the specific things they did. So I kind of want to go back to like kind of the pre-PayPal era. Peter Thiel and David Sachs wrote together at Stanford first uh, for some right-wing student newspaper, something that uh, Peter Thiel was involved in. And then they eventually wrote a book together, David Sachs and Peter Thiel, that is called The Diversity Myth, 
multiculturalism and political intolerance on campus. And besides a bunch of things that range from bigotry, like casual bigotry, right up to the line of like explicit racism, there's also a whole bunch of effectively rape and sexual assault apologia throughout this book that um, Teal and Sachs both wrote, where they tried to basically claim that many of these reports about sexual assault are not sexual assault, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Sachs has kind of apologized for it, but he'll never say specifically what he's apologizing for. When reporters ask him about the book, like the kind of thing he will end up saying is something like, uh, I'm embarrassed by some of my former views and regret writing them. But like, he'll never be particularly specific about which views those are he regrets. We recorded on this a couple of days ago, and there's one thing that's kind of been on my mind since shortly after we wrapped that I talked briefly about David Sachs and Peter Thiel's um, newspaper and book involving a lot of um, racism and rape apologia, and I'd mentioned David Sachs's very generic apology for it, where he said, um, it does not represent who I am or what I believe today. I'm embarrassed by some of my former views and regret writing them. But when I said that, I left off the very beginning part of the quote, which is, you're right, this is college journalism written over 20 years ago. And that journalism line kind of stuck in my head over the weekend. I kept thinking about this because even in the apology for what's rape apologia, Sachs felt the need to try to claim that what he and Peter Thiel were producing in this book was journalism. And frankly, I don't think interviewing Keith, uh, Keith Raboy or Rabbi or Rabwa or however you say his fucking name, yeah, interviewing him <laughs> because he got in trouble at Stanford for shouting a homophobic F slur at students as they walked by isn't journalism. <laughs> like having a whole section dedicated to the free speech argument for why he should be allowed to yell the yell that in the middle of the quad. That's not really journalism. Sharing your opinions on why these rapists aren't actually rapists is not really journalism. And combined with what we talked about before, which is how often this type of individual wants to control the narrative and wants to control the media, that really stuck in my head over the weekend. Trying to call that journalism. And like that kind of reactionary nonsense has been like part of the brand of the politics of this group of people in Silicon Valley for a long time. Jason Calacanis several years ago had a tweet where he said, like, the idea of white privilege itself is racist. And, like, yeah. that kind of thing runs through a lot of their discourse. These guys are super entitled. I don't know, man. These guys are, like, uh, just clearly um, uh, they represent everything wrong with venture capital in my mind. Um, and I want to talk about Jason Calacanis because this guy, you <laughs> you got to go on his show, which, you know, like, um, that's you know, that was before there was beef. Um, but I think these guys are, uh, yeah, like Jason particularly started really grating on, on my nerve when Silicon Valley Bank was in, in the throes of collapse. Now, as you, as you brought up, these guys are all in, in tight with, uh, Peter Thiel as well. And Peter Thiel, it's rumored. I want to say this is alleged. We don't know if this is true, but supposedly, Peter Thiel kind of helped kick off this bank run at SVB because after they asked for money from all the people who they'd been serving for 40 years, and Protoss has an article about this. Maybe we can link to this in the show. But after, after you know, serving the Silicon Valley venture capital community for 40 years, they were like, guys, we're in dire straits. We need some help. 
And instead of helping them, Peter Thiel went, okay, I'm going to pull all of my money out of SVB right now. And then people like Jason Calacanis were like, I'm going to pull all my money out of Silicon Valley Bank right now. And not just I'm going to pull my money out. You should pull your money out too. And I'm going to drive around town. Look, there's a, a line of people at Silicon Valley Bank trying to get their money out. They can't get it. Aren't you scared? Aren't you scared? And they and then they did episodes where they were saying, you know, this isn't our fault. Everyone should be jumping ship. And it's just like, man. And, and then after they helped cause this bank run, David Sachs goes and says, the government needs to backstop this. It shouldn't just be FDIC insurance. It should be everything. Everything should be insured. You did this. You helped do this. Take some responsibility. You should insure the deposits, David. You and Jason and Peter. And like you're kind of getting at there, we talked with Rohan Gray about how like, if all deposits are insured before the fact and you've set up the system that way, that can make sense. But what they were specifically asking for is to bail out the largest accounts at Silicon Valley Bank, only the ones that were over the insurance and which were not taking advantage of like sweeps and things like that, which as we've talked about on here when we talked about Silicon Valley Bank is because when Silicon Valley Bank extended credit to startups, they required that they keep their deposits there and stuff, right? Um, But yeah, like you're getting at, they specifically wanted a government bailout of these large corporations and individuals, only those who had more than 250K at this bank after they helped accelerate its failure. And by the way, I want to point this out. These people consider themselves to be the smartest financial, like the smartest finance people in the world, not just the US, in the world. They were keeping way more than $250,000 in these banks without setting up proper mechanisms to ensure that the, that they could get insurance, right? You can do it in such a way that you can actually, you can structure it so you have all of your money insured. Um, it's called a uh, sweep sweep account, right? The sweep account where you sweep it and it all gets swept, anything over 250 basically gets swept into a different account that can still get insured for up to $250,000. And instead of doing that, these companies and individuals were just leaving hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes in a, in a single account at SVB. I, yeah. How fucking stupid do you have to be? And th- this is where I go, you guys are not the smartest financial. Like, you shouldn't be giving advice. You shouldn't have a podcast espousing how fucking brilliant you are. No, you're rich guys. It takes money to make money. Like, you're able to pump and dump. You're able to do shitty scams and make money. There's nothing special about that. You guys are not special. Yeah, and... We've talked about on our coverage of Silicon Valley on here before that there's reasons that contributed to the fact that none of these companies were using like insured cash sweeps because of like specific terms in their credit agreements with Silicon Valley Bank and stuff. But I think that this is just one of those cases where you see how willing they are to try to extract for themselves, which is often like the most kind of parasitic type of venture capital. They are looking for places where their companies themselves can be inserted as effective rent seekers and they can get premier placement above others. And I think that one of the other examples of this is when they were discussing their Solana investment, right? And that's where you have... um, Chamath and David Sachs were both discussing how they found a way to reduce the size 
of unvested token positions. And this may confuse you, the listener, because you're hearing that and you're going, unvested tokens, that means they haven't received them. So how did they sell something before they received it? And you see, these are really clever financial people who are clearly contributing to our society because they decided <laughs> to start selling claims on future unvested tokens that they don't have yet. So they'll sell you the tokens that they're going to get in the future so that they don't need to wait for them now. And this was a thing they discussed doing with this relatively centralized token that they had gotten at pretty huge pre-sale discounts and that they had not vested yet. They were talking about selling claims against unvested tokens in this thing, which is not a registered security, but is a relatively centralized cryptocurrency. I'm sure you're hiding all that Solana in your fucking, <laughs> under your eyes. Jesus oh. I'm a, you better clear that Solana position. What's your lockup? 24 months? <laughs> Fuck no. He's trying to sell it to me on text message. Yeah, of course we're he is. We're negotiating discounts. I just had the fact. Hey, the you're pod. fucking the whole thing up. And that's kind of like the brazenness that we were initially getting at with like uh, Shamus, or with the man in the arena stuff, right? Is that they seem to believe that the act of investment is transformative in such a way that it has the ethical considerations of what you're investing in and what you contribute to do not come back to the investor. No moral judgment can be made about those who choose to invest. There is no moral judgment on anyone who's investing. And so if you try to apply morality to what they do, they recoil. They act as though moral considerations are beneath their consideration. Price discovery, in my mind, is a real, that is a job that you want to have being accomplished. Like market makers are kind of important in the world in the sense that like you need liquidity in markets so that people can trade their stocks and trade their bonds and trade their their stuff. Um, so you, you do need market makers. Now, how important are they? And how um, like comparing yourself to man in the arena or a firefighter or a police officer, or like somebody who has a real fucking job. It's not, I, I don't think it's okay. Um, so these guys, they, these guys take that to an extreme because now we're talking about venture capital where the, the, to me, there is some sort of moral and ethical, like you should be morally and ethically guided for market making. That's not, there's morals don't really play a role, right? You're, you're trying to just make it so that the market is all things equal. Um, but VC, the goal should should be to not scam retail. That the goal should be to introduce new innovative products to market. Should be to change and I, these are so cliche, but change and disrupt the world and stuff. I don't think that that's what these guys are doing. I, I think you're right. Right. I think like the good faith version of the value venture capital brings to the world, if you're trying to describe it, is that there are these individuals with this capital and they are in a position where they can take on outsized risk because they have so much more capital than the average person. And in doing so, via those investments and that risk taking, they can provide capital to new products which then themselves can bring value. But whenever I think about that value proposition, the only way the venture capitalist is really bringing value beyond just being rich is if they are using their judgment to try to determine which things they're investing in are going to in some way contribute value to the world and which ones will not, right? And I think that this is kind of the emptiness at the heart of like the man in the arena speech and a lot of what they talk about is they want to be abdicated of all responsibility for due diligence, for judgment, for thinking through what they are using their money for, 
what it's going to and what the consequences of those decisions are going to be. Yep. Yep. And, and you know, again, the perfect example being uh, Silicon Valley Bank, where Jason Calacanis had home loans through these guys. This guy was literally getting spot like they were funding some of his events. They were sponsoring like some of his content. He was working directly with these guys all the time. And then he helped kick off a fucking bank run against them, which is just I, you have to have no comprehension of morals and ethics to do something like that. And then at the end of it, to be like, I, and these guys still, to this day, as far as I know, think that they they saved people a bunch of money by doing this. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. In fact, you would have lost people a shit ton of money if the government hadn't have stepped in and secured all of these um, uh, accounts that were far larger than the amount they'd agreed to uh, back. So, no. You didn't do any value add. If anything, you hurt the company and the bank and the government, ultimately meaning you've hurt citizens, right? You've hurt the U.S. citizenry because who had to foot the fucking bill for that, you know? Who had to foot, foot the bill for FDIC covering this more than $250,000? The banks. Ultimately, people. People yeah. had to, to, fi to fix this situation. Americans had to fix this situation. And so... I, like these rich guys, that's it. That's what they are. They're rich guys who think that because they're rich guys, their opinions matter and are important. They're not adding anything to the discussion, right? When they discuss R RFK Jr. and give him a platform to spew his lies and his ridiculous claims about vaccines, they are doing a disservice to the American people and they're actively harming the American people, which is like, to me, th th this is the kind of stuff that Peter Thiel does. You know, these these guys do this stuff. They know exactly what they're doing, actually. And they'll play the innocent victim or the actually we're just trying to help everybody out. But they know that they are harming the America that we think of as to, to right now. And they they want America to fail as it's as it currently is. Well, and I think you've commented on this a little bit on Twitter before, like in your experience as a. Californian, I know you get frustrated watching any of these guys engage on any of the issues in like the Bay Area or San Francisco, which is like um, this city, this opportunity that made them all fabulously wealthy. And that often many of the ways they engage with the politics of that city and that region seems to be in a way where they don't care about the populace, the city, the people, really anything about it and look down upon it in many ways. The, the, San Francisco, yeah, is a perfect example of, and the Bay Area is a perfect example of all of these guys who, by the way, don't leave. It's not like they leave the Bay Area and move somewhere well, didn't, else. Didn't Sachs move to Miami at the beginning of the pandemic for a while? Yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. Give me a fucking I think he might break, be back dude. now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, none of them, like, like uh, oh, they'll leave. They'll leave in, in so far as they'll be like, yeah, I have a house in Miami now or or I have a house in Austin now. But they still have a house in the Bay Area, by the way, that they go I'm to living all the percent of my I'm living 51% of my days in Puerto Rico. Right, right. <laughs> Until a neighbor fucking reports you. Um, but yes, uh, uh, they, 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 love to, um, they love to blame the government for all of the problems in places like San Francisco. And yet I remember I, I've been going to San Francisco since I was one one year old. Um, and it wasn't it was a different city back then. It was a different city when I was 10 than now. Um, and in many ways, yeah, like it is to me, it's a worse place. And I'll tell you, it started fucking changing when all these tech guys moved in and started just throwing money at everything. Right. The, the average home price in San Francisco, I think. And, and I might have this a little bit off, 
But back when I was like eight to 10 years old, I think the average home price was like $600,000 in San Francisco or something like that. Maybe even less. It's like two and a half million dollars now or something as an average, which is just like, I don't know, mind boggling that like obviously home rates across the country have gone up. But like in San Francisco particular, you had this massive driving up of prices. And then you wonder like, why are there homeless people? Why can't we fix this? Why can't, why is, why is this service industry hurting so much? Like why? You guys are why. Fix it. Fix it. You think it's such a big problem? Oh. Do something about it. I'm not sure them getting involved in trying to fix it would help because I've noted many of their involvement in the recent takeover of my favorite social media application, Twitter. Um, and I've talked about some of this on a video on my personal channel, but David Sachs and Jason Calacanis especially have wanted to be very involved in Elon's takeover of Twitter, with Jason at one point like uh, practically begging in text messages to be made the CEO of Twitter, telling Elon something like, put me in, coach, I'm ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. And both David Sachs oh, and Jason, so especially, especially earlier on in the acquisition, they've slowed down a little bit now, were very big fans of anything Elon announced and would... Um, mm host polls to help Elon kind of sound out people. What should Twitter Blue be cost? $5, $8, $15, $30? Um, and in much the same way, they, they did that with a lot of the decisions. And they do kind of the same kind of thing whenever they want to comment on politics. Uh, Jason recently had a tweet where he tried to just kind of guesstimate how many packages a UPS driver might do to try to figure out what they're earning right. from their new contract and things like that. Oh how many packages can they do in an hour? One, two, five, eight? Should I just keep counting? <laughs> and like there is a, um, it's like kind of we talked about like the value of investors, their ability to kind of understand the things they're investing in and identify value that other people can't. And they seem to believe because they happen to end up wealthy that that must be evidence that they have some kind of preternatural ability to generate that type of insight. And from that frame, they've decided that that applies to everything in their life. They understand music and the struggles of poor people south of Richmond better than anyone else. They, they understand how to, how to structure a bank that serves venture capital, despite the fact that Peter Thiel's anti-woke bank had failed shortly before the Silicon Valley bank run. Or... Um, all of these different things come from like such a surface level engagement with the issues. Same thing with much of their engagement in like Russia, Ukraine and David Sachs regularly oh, taking his opportunities yeah. to push like Russia Ministry of Defense talking points. They're engaging in these issues at a very shallow level. And the tack they often choose to promote is both stupid and harmful. Right. This it reminds me of Tandler, one of the things she got raked over the coals for was that she had specifically said like back in the day you know what we would have done with these drug addicts and people who are degenerates on the streets we would have hung them and everyone was just like wait <laughs> whoa back the fuck up did you just like unironically suggest we should go back to the good old days here um and she's like no 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 i didn't mean it like that and it's like yes you did you did mean it like that which is insane but now we get back full circle here which is very much like um rules for thee but not for me because these same guys i don't know if this is now this is going back to another silicon valley story um earlier this year the ceo of MobileCoin uh was murdered um in san francisco uh and you know horrible tragic story 
and you want to know what these all-in guys and these other venture capitalists did as soon as they heard this story, well, they jumped on it. And they started saying, see, this is proof of how fucked up San Francisco is. Like, even rich people just get murdered by these homeless crazies. They didn't know the story, though, which was that someone who personally knew the MobileCoin CEO had murdered him because he was mad at him for whatever reasons. Like, there's no... not. There's no justification for murder, but like he wasn't just a homeless, crazy guy going and killing a, a, a centimillionaire. Like these guys are jumping to their own conclusions and coming to their own solutions before they even know the surface level problems that are actually going on. And it's everything. It's the Bay Area. It's their investments. It's their stances on political candidates. It's their understanding of macroeconomics everything right like they they just spout nonsense without ever doing the appropriate amount of like pausing and reflecting. i think you're kind of getting at like what the core issue here is and it's that each of them believes they have like a theory of everything for how the world works that they have by observing this through their positions gain an understanding of banking, macroeconomics, politics, and they think they understand how all these different things are interconnected. And despite the fact that often when they opine on these things, they demonstrate that they don't understand at all how these things are interrelated, they have managed because of their prominence and because this position they hold to spin these narratives out of whole cloth, jumping from anecdota to assumptions about some systemic thing to how that systemic thing is clearly connected to some other third thing and how that third thing is like the real issue. And then they spend 40 minutes focusing on the dangers of wokeness and how it leads to all these things, <laughs> all because there was someone who got murdered by someone they knew in some kind of crime of passion, disagreement, whatever. The core thing that took them to the original point doesn't matter by the time they've spent 40 minutes on this thing because it was all just part of their overarching theory. This was just but one example that let you see their insight. Yep, this is, this is, exa this is exactly right. And, this is, and so this is where we get into like why I have an issue with all in in general. So first of all, I want to say there are people who are doing podcasts because they love sharing information or they love telling a story or they they love doing it, actually. I don't think these guys love doing... I don't think they know fucking anything about podcasting, first of all. I know, you know, Jason has been involved in blogs and podcasting forever. I don't... It doesn't matter. Like, to me, they see it as a mechanism, right? The, the same way a... You know, the same way Hearst ran a newspaper empire or Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post or Carlos Slim bought the New York Times, right? Like the, the reason these billionaires are buying these media outlets or doing these podcasts is not because they want to necessarily like be, do the most factual thing or present the most fair narrative or whatever. It's to influence people. It's simply to influence people. That's it. It's not it's not their love of sharing. It's not their love of investigation. It's not their love of um, any, any of that. It's just wanting to influence people. And so when I look at what All In is capable of, I understand it's capable of manipulating people. It's capable of manipulating retail investors. It's that is what they're doing, whether that's what they'll admit to doing or not. And I think that's like the worst kind of podcast. That's that's up there with BitBoy Crypto, where it's like the, the difference between BitBoy Crypto and the All In podcast is the amount of money that they have. That's all. That's all. Maybe they, they know they have a better vocabulary than BitBoy. But like outside of that, 
bunch of fucking scammers in my opinion. And and like I I just I I'm sad. The All In podcast is the number 2 podcast in technology in the US. Number 4 in the UK. These guys are manipulating you. They're doing they're doing this for all the wrong reasons. If you want to listen to them, that's your prerogative. I'm not going to tell you not to listen to them, but I am going to say know what you're getting into when you listen, right? We we put it in our name. We're here to be critical of the cryptocurrency industry, fraud, like expose it, talk about it, discuss it, uh, ask questions about it. That's what we've been here to do from the very beginning. Ask yourself what these four centimillionaire and billionaires are doing, doing a podcast all the time. Shouldn't they have better things to spend their time on? Better ways to make money? No, this is super influential and manipulative. I think there's a couple of interesting things you got it there. And what I could, what I kept thinking of when you were talking was um, Peter Thiel and the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker, which for those who don't know, Gawker was a blog that covered a lot of celebrity gossip kind of tabloid stuff at a slightly higher level than perhaps maybe your average newsstand tabloid. And at one point, they covered Hulk Hogan's sex tape. Peter Thiel took this as an opportunity to fund a years-long lawsuit by Hulk Hogan against Gawker that eventually ended up with Gawker in a financial position where they got sold, resold, resold, and are now on like four different parent companies different than when that was initially started. But the end effect of it was that like, the reporting and journalistic core across all of Gawker media, not just like the main Gawker one, Lifehacker, Gizmodo, everything down the line, ended up getting gutted due to the financial repercussions of this lawsuit. And this kind of tactic, started by Peter Thiel and Hulk Hogan here, became a technique that was used in other cases by people like this as well. And so it's like you're talking about the many of the most important media outlets right now are already owned and influenced by billionaires. The most popular cable news network is owned by fucking Rupert Murdoch, right? Um, and so they've taken out much of that type of media. Now it's important, like you're getting it for them, to seed the field with their narratives, for there to be people who what they hear first about these events is what these individuals think and feel about it. And their podcast is way more successful than ours. They're getting, what, like 35 times the views we are or more? And so they are in a position where they could afford to pay a full-time researcher or fact-checker to, like, <laughs> sit with their editor and help make sure their podcast contained fewer falsehoods. <laughs> they could afford to hold their podcast for an extra day to make sure that happened and things like that. They could on some of these podcasts where they make false claims, go back in the YouTube editor and remove some of those false claims or pin comments where they issue corrections and do things like that. And you want to know all these things I just listed that they could be doing? They're not doing any of them. And it's because the framing is just, it's just these four guys who happen to end up with money who are giving you their honest gut level take. But the thing is, for the average person, the statements being given to you by million by millionaires, billionaires, by the powerful in general, even if they seem like just genuine heartfelt thoughts off the cuff or whatever, are going to be in their best interest. Either it's something they believe is going to help them advance their own cause, or in many cases they are engaging in particular issues and topics with the guidance of public relations professionals, media professionals, and people who are helping them know what they should say for the most engagement, know what to say that'll go viral even if it's false, and are helping them like clip, cut, and seed parts of this to get it out and to amplify that effect 
even when the claims that are being made are nonsense, even when the jumps are illogical, even when the evidence is just not there because it raises their profile. It improves their deal flow and it makes them more influential, more respected and more powerful. And for folks like this, power is the name of the game. Yep. I like th this is my the if you want to if you want insight into how they operate as venture capitalists, I think it's worth looking at how they operate as a podcast, right? Like these guys put no time into research. They put no time into going back and reviewing the content that they're putting out and altering it if it's wrong. They have no interest in rescinding comments that they make that are false. These guys don't care. They do not care. They're in it for one fucking reason. And it's simply to be influential. That's it. They don't care if they hurt people. They don't care if they're lying or wrong. They don't care about any of that stuff. So they're, the, uh, they're, they're doing... the Kardashians of business podcasting. Yeah. And if you want to know, and if you want to know like how their venture capitalists, their venture capital funds operate, then I think that's, that is the way, right? They don't care if what they're investing in hurts the world or is something that's actually interesting at all. If it's going to make them money, that's all that really matters. Um, and so, like, do you want, do you want these people to, I, like, I think I, I, I'm speaking to both venture capitalists and the public at large. Like, do you want these people to represent venture capital? Do you want these people to represent Silicon Valley? Do we want these guys to be the mouthpieces of the rich? Because if these are the mouthpieces of the rich in Silicon Valley and venture capital, people are going to hate you more than they already do. I, I want to add beyond that, and I think kind of related to that is... Many people feel this kind of inclination that they have to give a certain amount of consideration to abhorrent views because those abhorrent views are commonly associated with one side of the political spectrum. And you can't just disregard one side of the political spectrum. That would be wrong, right? And so Peter Thiel and David Sachs incredibly abhorrent comments about diversity, about sexual assault, about all these things end up seeming almost forgiven and forgotten because it's expected for someone like David Sachs, who supports the kind of people David Sachs supports. It's expected that someone like Jason Calacanis would come out and say the idea of white privilege is racism. And I think that many of these people should more commonly be criticized for the types of things they say and do. We seem to often have this kind of instinct to let the powerful be. There's no consequences associated with doing abhorrent things, doing repulsive things. And so because of that, they feel empowered to make the repulsiveness part of their brand. And so when you engage with people who are doing abhorrent things, it makes you look a little bit abhorrent. And I mean, I'm, I guess, in some sense guilty of that, because as you mentioned, I went on Jason's podcast to talk about uh, Tether, to talk about Tara and to do that. And like, there's an argument that I shouldn't have, that by going on there, I was lending in some part my name to Jason's efforts and stuff like that. And I think that's a fair criticism, that it's fair for people to direct at me. But I think also more broadly, we need to focus on that kind of effort larger more important people than just Crypto Critics Corner need to seriously think about how they cover and engage with this type of individual. Yes, this is this is something I've discussed with other journalists who have spoken with Jason Calacanis and David Sachs and stuff. I've I've been like, this seems like like it, these guys. I, I was like, they do speak for the for 
for VC, for SV. Like they speak for, for Silicon Valley and venture capital, whether they admit to it or not, like that is what they're doing. And this person was like, I agree with you, but unfortunately there's just like a lot of VC people out there who either aren't good at speaking, don't want the limelight, don't want attention. Like there's, there are plenty of reasons to not put yourself out there. Unfortunately, I think this is now to the point where these are the only venture capitalists that people think of by name. Like there's very few that the general public knows. And these yeah. four are up there. People like Mr. Wonderful too. Not good, not good people making good investments. And if you want to stop that, Unfortunately, if you're a good VC out there, I can't name one, if, but if you are a good VC out there and you are trying to be innovative in the most meaningful way and you do care about the public perception of your entire industry, you should be speaking up about these um, well, and, and pushing back. I, yeah. And I think your reference to Mr. Wonderful there was important. And I think this is an issue we should have handled better when we had Mark Cuban on. But I mm -hmm. think like Shark Tank and the kind of investing is entertainment is in large part kind of responsible for something like All In, where um, once the public sees kind of the process of making an investment decision as this entertaining thing made by these people who are asking all these types of questions to them or something and has this image in their head of it, it lets something like the All In podcast use their own investing experience to kind of create their own entertainment product, right? And you start with discussing things that at least nominally, you have familiarity with. They have run businesses of varying degrees of successfulness, depending on how we want to categorize it. They've made a lot of money in that regard, and so have at least something to share, presumably, on what that process looks like and what their experience was. And once you've done that and become an entertainer in that regard, it becomes easier to kind of push ahead on that and make everything else entertainment. And when you do that, when it's all just that, you're making your decisions based on kind of what's entertaining, what's going to receive a reaction, and what's going to benefit you. I think this contributes to some of those things like uh, Shamath saying like the Chinese exploitation of the Uyghurs was below his line, right? Like it was just a thing he couldn't be arsed to care about. Oh, God, I um, forgot about that. <laughs> we didn't bring that up. <laughs> I, and I think that kind of comes from like kind of a largely similar place. This isn't real in that sense. This is like a performance. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that I, I, great that you brought that up, too. Uh, like if you want to think about how these people view other human beings, it's with vitriol. Like that 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 Chamath statement is so gross on any real level to be like slaves. Why would I care about slaves? Why would I care about concentration camp? Uh, what, dude? Like. I don't even know how to respond to that. I don't know what to say to that. Like, that's below your line. Where's your fucking line? Yeah. Nuclear war? It, I don't like, where the fuck is your line, dude? Virgin, virgin galactic. Virgin yeah, galactic above the line. Suffering of te that's tens, right. hundreds, my bags are the fucking of thousands line. <laughs> of people. That's below the line. And yeah, I think this is kind of a really good example. And we talked before about like the way they'll discuss unhoused people and people suffering from addictions and things like that. People in much of their calculations are not human beings deserving of love, respect, and consideration. They are the masses continually swarming at the edges of their field of vision, threatening their view of the world. Right. They're 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 why the system is broken and they need to be fixed, as opposed to like maybe the system's broken when there's a shit ton of billionaires. Like, I don't know. These this I think you and I talked about this before, but it's like if you don't want to be the most hated people, they'll say like we don't care, but I know they do. And the reality is like they also 
like I know what these guys fear the most is like a a, a public upri- uprising against the wealthy, right? Like I know these guys fear communism and socialism and and the idea of like the common man rising up against the wealthy man. I know that they fear that absolutely. Which I'm not. I'm not a communist. Like I want to. I want people to be clear. I'm not a freaking communist or socialist or. I don't consider. I. It's all a utopian ideal in my in my mind. None of it is real. Um, whether it's communism or capitalism or whatever, there's no pure. These are just silly ideology. But regardless, these guys fear that. And and if you if you don't want to fear it, you should stop pissing everyone off so much. It's fucking simple, guys. Don't celebrate when the common man loses because of you. Don't celebrate when you cause bank runs and and suggest that you saved everybody. Stop it. Stop acting like assholes. It's like it's so simple for everyone else to do it. Why are you guys so incompetent? Why is it so hard for you guys? I don't know, man. It's wild. It's wild. And they'd say, I'm sure they'd say like, that's why they're rich. But like, oof, if that's what it takes to be wealthy, to have no morals and ethics and to celebrate hurting other people, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need it. Yeah. And, and this is kind of why them reacting to the Richmond North of Richmond song was so hilarious to me, right? Is because like that song in the type of populism it portrays is... I'm sure a thing that many people feel very legitimately, but in so much of it, it feels directed at the wrong individuals, right? Like there's lyrics in the song complaining about people receiving welfare or things like this and listening to the one-tenth of the 1% basically sitting there and being like, yeah, these guys get it. Those poor people taking advantage of welfare are the problems. And it's all because of those rich men north or the rich men north of Richmond lobbying the government and getting involved. And I'm like, um, all of you are involved with a variety of political action groups and political things. You are all fabulously wealthy. If the song's not about you, who is it about? Politicians, not them. Politicians, just yeah. politicians, not not venture capitalists. Trust me. Um, yeah, I'm glad we did this. Maybe we'll add to it later. Maybe this will be the end. So I'm just gonna go ahead and uh, sign us out here. Um, like I said, I have personal beef with these guys. I think they're the worst. I don't respect them. I think that their podcast stinks. Um, but we're a tiny podcast, and we're tiny voices here, and people don't take us super seriously when we. <laughs> complain about people like this so i you know i'm not suggesting that this is even going to make a dent or um cause any waves whatsoever but i do think it's an important discussion because these guys represent venture capital and they represent the worst of venture capital so um yeah uh, remember um cast coin um whether it's unstaked staked whether you've you have vested unvested it doesn't matter buy more cast coin everything is good i know there's now rumors about our ability to um work with five Russian banks and uh, and get um, deposits sent to Europe. But I assure you that Cascoin is fine and everything is operating as I expected it to. Cascoin is looking for investors right now. If you're familiar, if, you, if you're if you in touch with Jason or Ch- Chamath or or David Sachs or David Friedberg, <laughs> reevaluate your life choices. <laughs> Episodes. One episode closer to getting canceled. One episode closer. Man, how great would it be to be canceled and never have to work again? Oh.